Good morning, Deep Run Church family. This morning we will be reading from Daniel 7 in the English Standard Version. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw it in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came on to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. We're working our way through the book of Daniel. And we're discovering how people of faith can flourish in challenging circumstances, especially when uh, the systems, the society, the communities around them are, are unsympathetic or no longer sympathetic to their faith, to their worldview. 
And Daniel chapter 7 is now going to, uh, we're, we're leading into the second half of, of Daniel. And chapter 7 is the climactic center of Daniel's book. And Daniel 7 would become the key for how the Bible and how the New Testament authors would understand God's purposes for human history. So, so this, is, this is one of the key moments of, of Old Testament history and interpretation. Daniel chapters 1 through 6, uh, we noticed, recorded in chronological fashion uh, the trials and perseverance of Daniel and his friends. Now, chapters 7 to 12 will recount for us Daniel's visions of future events, okay, that God gave him throughout his life as an exile living in Babylon. Okay, so, so from chapter 6 to 7, this requires a shift, a different reading approach, a different style of interpretation, because we're moving from six chapters of historical narrative to now chapters of apocalyptic literature. Now, just for today, um, and this is going to bore some of you, but just a brief guide on how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Now, you may say, well, why is he doing this right now? And this maybe it'll sound boring to you, but listen, think of it this way. You buy a new product, you get something you're excited to use, you start looking at the user's manual, right? You open the box, you look at the manual, and after about 30 seconds of reading the manual, you throw it away and you start using the thing you've wanted to use. And, and then after a while, things don't seem quite right. You get confused. You can't figure it out, right? So what do you do? You go back, you pick up the manual, and you go to troubleshooting section, and you try and figure out, how do I use this thing, right? That's what we're doing right now. Five simple principles about apocalyptic literature in the Bible that you will need to go back to in the coming weeks. Here they are. Okay. Um, Biblical apocalyptic literature is optimistic, Unlike our modern, uh, contemporary, pessimistic, apocalyptic understanding. Uh, Think of apocalyptic movies and stories um, today. Uh, Think of the sense of the term now. What do you see? Violent upheavals of nature and society mark the end of human existence, right? Like the zombie apocalypse. It's all pessimistic, right? But in the Bible's apocalyptic literature... All of that trauma concludes with God defeating evil, with God restoring shalom, flourishing, peace, prosperity, order to humanity and to all of creation. Okay, so biblical apocalyptic literature is ultimately, though frightening, optimistic. Okay, Apoc 2, apocalyptic language is highly symbolic. It is figurative. It is poetic, on purpose. Uh, Tremper Longman, the Old Testament scholar, says this about reading books like Daniel and Revelation in the New Testament. Images speak true and accurately, but not precisely. What we're about to read is true, is accurate, but was not written to be precise. Neither should we interpret it uh, with too much precision. What we need as we interpret apocalyptic literature, is to be cautious and to be reserved in how we interpret. Okay, the language is intentionally 
ambiguous. Why is that? So that we can see the forest and get the big picture instead of just focusing on each individual tree, right? With apocalyptic literature, you're trying to ultimately get the whole forest and not overemphasize all the individual trees. And that leads me to the third, the third principle, which is how I'm going to interpret the book of Daniel. This is, this is the perspective from which I am coming. I interpret apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Um, I, I'm coming from a tradition that interprets it literally, not literalistically. What do I mean by that? To interpret this in a literal sense is, is to interpret it as originally intended by the writer in the original context, right? To, inter- to interpret something literally in the Bible is to interpret it as it was originally written in a particular genre. So this is not historical narrative. It is apocalyptic. To interpret something literalistically, what I mean by that is that, that you believe that every specific detail corresponds to real people, real places, real things at, at specific times. Sometimes it may be true, but, but sometimes it's not. So the difference here is I'm trying to interpret this literally, not literalistically. Literally means we're trying to see the entire forest and understand the big picture, what God was trying to communicate in these visions to Daniel. Not literalistically, which would be studying each tree individually and missing the forest missing the big picture, right? So that's the third principle, literal, not literalistic. The fourth principle, apocalyptic literature was less bizarre and strange to the original readers than it is to us because the symbolism was culturally significant to them. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it made much more sense to them. For example, if today you picked up a political cartoon in a magazine, or, or, or a meme, okay? Um, and let's say in that political cartoon, one of the characters portrayed by the artist is wearing a dark cape and wearing a black helmet that covers their face and swoops down towards their shoulders. And, 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 and this, this person is breathing heavily, like this. Now, you would understand that, right? Somebody living in Daniel's day would be very confused at all of that imagery, but you would get it. You would say, that person is being depicted as the villain because they're Vader like, right? But it would confuse Daniel if he, if he showed up today and was looking at something like that. So when Daniel had this dream and when people, in the, in, when people 600 years uh, before Christ read this stuff, it would have made more sense to them than it does to you and to me. All right. So the fifth principle, apocalyptic literature reveals God's perspective on human history, on the grand narrative of history and where it's headed. Apocalyptic literature reveals God's perspective. And and that's what apocalypsis, the Greek word, means. It means revelation. Now, you may say, well, isn't all of the Bible God's revelation to humanity? Yes, it is. But apocalyptic revelation reveals God's perspective on the whole thing. 
How does God see from his throne human history and the goal of human history? That's what apocalyptic literature is revealing. So those five principles, you may have to keep coming back to them, kind of like an owner's manual, as we keep going through the book of Daniel. Okay, uh, speaking of perspective, a divine perspective is critical for interpreting the movements of human history. That's what Daniel chapter 7 and the rest of the book are going to show us. That a divine perspective, God's perspective, is critical for us being able to interpret the movements of human history, especially the ones we're living through right now in our lifetime. And so we're going to look at how apocalyptic literature in the Bible, specifically the book of Daniel, gives us perspective not only on the future, but also on the past and our present. How apocalyptic literature gives us perspective on the past, the present, and the future. All right? Now, Daniel's visions... And this isn't the only one. We're going to keep, they're going to keep coming throughout the rest of the book. Daniel's visions give us perspective on the past, even our past, which, which was Daniel's present. Okay, Daniel has a dream. And verse 1 of chapter 7, it's, it's the first year of Belshazzar's regency under his father, Nabonidus. So, so we scroll back in time now in chapter 7 uh, to the previous empire. No longer are we dealing with the Medes and the Persians. We're back to the Babylonians. Okay, this is roughly, according to a few scholars, 551 BC. This is over 50 years since Daniel was deported to exile in his, in his teens. And Daniel has a dream, and in that dream he sees two visions, or think of it as two scenes of the same play. In the first scene, in the first vision, Daniel sees four terrifying beasts emerge in succession from a tumultuous sea. Now, to ancient Near Eastern peoples living in the Middle East, cultures understood the sea, the ocean, to represent chaos. It wasn't like they were on a big, massive, unsinkable ocean liner going across the Atlantic. When they saw the sea, the ocean, it represented to them the unknown. Chaos, it represented to them evil. You even see that throughout the Bible itself. And so you have winds coming from the north, south, east, west, all four directions. And what are they doing? Churning up the waters of the sea. This sets the stage. Daniel in his dream and, 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 and the ancient people reading this account, they understand. All right, a, temp, uh, a, tempest, a tempestuous sea, something's brewing, something's coming. They would have anticipated something dreadful is about to happen. And it does. What does Daniel see in his dream? He sees four beasts emerge from the chaotic sea. Terrible beasts. The first one is basically, we don't have a lot of time, so I'll sum this up quickly. The first one is a man-like winged lion. Interesting. Kind of like those statues that you see in Babylonian art and, um, and, and sculpture. A, uh, a man-like winged lion. But then there's a second beast. It is a bear devouring its prey. The third beast uh, is even more bizarre. It's a four-headed winged leopard of great speed. And then the fourth beast is so terrible that it's beyond the resemblance of any known animal of this world. Now remember, this is a dream. 
We are in the realm of the subconscious. So it's, this is a nightmare. Daniel's having a nightmare. It's like Godzilla coming to life. The beasts are not only terrible, though, they're revolting. They're revolting to, to an ancient Jew um, who understands that uh, from, from the Old Testament law, there are certain things you don't mix in nature and in culture. There's a, there's a general sense of the created order that the Israelites were used to keeping and honoring as created by God. But, but these beasts are mutants. They're grotesque. They're mixed mutations of the natural order. So it's not only terrifying, it's also revolting. Um, he doesn't get, when, he's, when he sees this in his dream, he doesn't get the warm fuzzies like we do when we see Mr. Tomness in the story of Narnia. This was, this was terrifying to him. Okay, and, and the fourth beast, it has ten horns, but then it grows an eleventh horn. And this little horn has what? Human eyes and a big mouth. Right? It's talking smack. That's the first vision. Scene two, we see this transition from the beasts into the courtroom of heaven. And there the Ancient of Days, Daniel sees seated on his throne in the midst of a countless myriad of angelic beings. And there, God, terrible, not terrible in horror or menace, but terrible in his glory and majesty, sits down and holds court. But Daniel, <laughs> Daniel notices that little human-like horn won't shut up. And so the horn is judged and destroyed. And then in, in this second vision of the courtroom of God, a figure appears. A hero arrives in Daniel's nightmare. And I'm just going to read this passage that forever changed the Jewish expectations for the Messiah, and would dictate how the New Testament authors understood what God was doing and would do in human history. And behold, Daniel wrote, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now in the Old Testament, only God rides on the clouds. Isaiah 19 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. So this mysterious figure that Daniel sees in the vision approaching the throne of the Ancient of Days, this, this figure is not merely a man, right? What does it say? It says, one like a son of man. So this is not merely a man because the setting is heaven, surrounded by angels in the presence of the Almighty God. Yet this figure is man-like. Not merely a man, but man-like. Though he is not the Ancient of Days, what do you see? He is treated just like 
the Ancient of Days. All dominion and honor and worship is given to this one who is like a son of man. Daniel, after seeing evil, man-like beasts, now sees a righteous, God-like man. Now, since this was Daniel's dream, right? It's not Nebuchadnezzar dreaming anymore. This is Daniel dreaming, so he has to seek another's help for interpreting what he saw in his dream. So he reaches out to one of the angels nearby him in the vision, and the angel explains everything that Daniel sees. And we can't read all of it, just verses 17 and 18. We're going to summarize it all here. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now, there are myriad interpretations for understanding these four beasts. For now, it's logical for us to go back to Daniel chapter 2, where we've already seen that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which four empires, historical empires, were revealed to Nebuchadnezzar himself and his empire, Babylon, being the first of those four empires represented in the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Okay, so Babylon being the first, now the rest, well, regarding the rest of these beasts, let's just wait for Daniel chapter 8, where another vision will reveal even more. Okay, for now, suffice it to say, in the words of Glenn Parkinson in his book, this time, in Daniel's dream, this time, all the earthly empires are depicted as beasts, all energized by a pride that claims the right to rule like God over their citizens. Just like Nebuchadnezzar in his lifetime, according to Daniel chapter 4, became beast-like, right? Nebuchadnezzar became beast-like because of his great pride, In the same way, entire governments follow suit, become beast-like, just like their leaders, in the pursuit of power and influence and control. John Lennox puts it this way, from one point of view, from the point of view of Daniel's vision, empires resemble wild animals. But unlike humans, animals are not what? Are not moral beings. Lennox goes on to write, the overall impression of the vision is of the dark underbelly of politics, the jockeying for power with less and less moral qualm, until a sense of humanity and compassion disappears under the ruthless lust for power and domination. So Daniel remains frightened Right? But he learned something of tremendous comfort. God, in the end, wins. And his own Son of Man will establish a permanent kingdom that will never fade away, will never be overcome. A kingdom and a leader who will finally establish permanent shalom. So, Uh, This vision reveals a perspective on our past, right? As a human race, this vision 
that Daniel received in his present reveals for us perspective on our past. God in human history, from one nation to the next, from one movement to the next, was preparing the way for his Messiah to come. Now, although symbolism and styles change over history, the world's dynamics really don't. Language chains change, images change, cultures change, uh, but, but the dynamics between people and uh, uh, politics, they don't change. Daniel's vision gives us perspective on our present. That's really important. When you look at apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation, it's easy to get caught up in only the future and what will happen or what might happen. Um, The scriptures always, always are relevant for the present. And these visions give us perspective on our present. While Daniel was alarmed by what he saw in his dream, we are alarmed, aren't we, by history unfolding before us. Every day we're alarmed by what we see in real life, right? Our televisions and smartphones and newspapers feed us constantly what real life nightmares every day. All you want, right? Real life, everyday nightmares in which we see in print the depravity of crack houses and sweatshops and corrupt cops and uh, dishonest, shifty stockbrokers and and militant tyrants and abusive parents, right? Uh, But what what we discover, though, is all of this trickles down from the highest offices and seats of power. Everywhere, right? This happens everywhere, all the time. Living nightmares that trouble us and grieve us. We must respectfully, but honestly, hold America and every nation up against the light of this amazing vision in Daniel chapter 7. At times in its own history, America has, uh, to put it as someone else said, America has soared like a majestic eagle. Because, Because not all nations are all bad all the time. By God's common grace, he has instituted human government, uh, even far from perfect human governments, to curb back the effects of human sin and brokenness. Okay, but, but, an eagle is still a wild animal. An eagle will always act, whether it's at rest or on the hunt, like an eagle. And governments will always act, will always act according to their nature. But the vision teaches us that from God's perspective, that shouldn't surprise us. When we look in horror at what nations do and still do, we shouldn't be surprised. It's how human governments are. They are acting according to their nature. There are some good governments and there are some bad governments, but there are no ideal ones. Does this bother you? Not only to talk of 
governments, but to talk of our nation in which we live now that way? Maybe you need to shift your perspective. I encourage you to think of this, think even of our own nation from the perspective of an exile and not a native, as we've been talking about. Think of nations and even your own from the perspective of an oppressed outsider like Daniel. Think of your own nation from the perspective of today's persecuted Christians in China and Iran, or from the perspective of slaves in our own country's history, or those trapped under segregation for decades, or still stymied by unjust housing laws. From that perspective, you see, the vision begins to comfort us. Because you discover in this vision that God will establish His government and His ruler forever. So, seek God's wisdom. Seek His wisdom and seek His comfort as you witness history unfold before your own eyes in a way that terrifies you. Seek His wisdom first and you will receive his comfort. Look at Daniel. Daniel, what did he do? Now, yes, he was in a dream. He saw, a re- it was a real vision, but it was in a dream. But what did he do? He asked for understanding, right? He turned to an angel and, and said, help me understand what's going on here and what I'm seeing. Daniel looked beyond himself and his own context for understanding. And then what did he receive? He not only received understanding, but comfort also. And, and, and that's how we get perspective for our present, right? We lean on God for understanding and comfort. Whose perspective, then, I have to ask, whose perspective is influencing you and comforting you the most right now? How often, when we're distressed at these visions of living history, all around us, how, how often do we counter to the wisdom of Scripture? How often do we lean on our own understanding and try to be wise in our own eyes or according to the wisdom of those around us, leaders that we look up to, influencers we follow, the ideologies that we are passionate about, religion, our possessions, and our assets? Are you turning to these things first? Right? Is, is, this, are, is this your default panacea or authority or new source or comfort? If yes, then you will discover that these sources of understanding will prove to be for you false comforts. You've probably seen already that they are. Okay? But not this king. Not this one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, given dominion over all things forever, who will reign with his saints forever. Not that king. Because the Bible says of that king, of this one who is like a son of man, in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we can have ultimate confidence and comfort in God's forever king. Daniel's visions 
give us perspective on our future, on the future as well. More than Daniel, more than Daniel could see when looking at these visions, we can look back on and are living through and will someday see completed the very fulfillment of Daniel's vision. Six centuries after Daniel, Jesus of Nazareth lived among the Jews who were subjected to the empire of the time, Rome itself. And Jesus of Nazareth declared himself, referred to himself again and again, 50 times recorded in the four Gospels of the New Testament, referred to himself as what? The Son of Man. So offended and terrified was was the high priest in Jerusalem when he heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man that the high priest tore his robes in in anguish and disgust when Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest and the entire Sanhedrin gave Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. You see, even religion can become beast-like and has become beast-like when it seeks in pride its own power. But God has revealed, and yes, history has revealed that Daniel's vision was true and reliable because that same Jesus, the Son of Man, rose from the dead. And the Apostle John would later say in his own revelation that the Lord Jesus revealed to him, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. My friends, every one of you, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you are not, I invite you, I invite you to draw close to this Son of Man who is returning. And to Him, every knee will bow, right? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to draw close and discover who this Jesus, who this Son of Man, who is destined to inherit the earth and humanity and all of creation and bring it to its ultimate fulfillment and peace and justice and righteousness and balance. Draw close to Him. Receive true understanding and comfort from Him when you look at the living nightmares taking place in the world around us. I'll close with a quote from scholar Joyce Baldwin. Once convinced of the truth of Daniel chapter 7 and what it proclaims, the reader is in possession of the key to history. The international scene is not, after all, out of hand, for it is in God's hand. And individual lives find their meaning in relation to His kingdom. Those who pray sincerely, thy kingdom come, 
lose themselves in his great cause and in the process find their own identity. So a divine perspective, God's perspective, is critical and liberating for interpreting the movements of human history. Seek his perspective and find his comfort. Keep Jesus Christ always before your mind's eye in these tumultuous times. All the things you see, don't be blind to Jesus. As the old Irish hymn sang, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day and by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Let Jesus fill not only your sleeping dreams, but your waking nightmares. Let him enter into the chaos and provide meaning to it all and comfort for you. Every other leader, every other government, every other, other, every other system or panacea or philosophy or ideology will reveal itself to you as a false hope, but not him, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So seek God's wisdom in Christ and his comfort as you witness history unfold before your eyes. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess and admit that uh, sometimes it feels like we are living through a nightmare. As if the horrors of our dreams um, follow us into our waking moments. We ask for your wisdom that we may lean on it, that we may not be wise in our own eyes, but wise, wise based on your understanding. May we, like Daniel, seek you to interpret what we see before us. And Father, comfort us with the truth of your Jesus, your Messiah, your Son of Man, who has come and will return to make all things right. We wait in the chaos of this world for him to restore peace and meaning, and beauty, and justice, and righteousness. In his name, we seek you, and we ask that Jesus would be our vision by day and by night, whether awake or asleep. Would he be our, our, our light? In his name, amen.